This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. People will choose the path of least effort when there are multiple paths available. So if there is friction in one company's customer experience process and less in another's, that company with less over time will accumulate more business. That's the voice of Roger Dooley. He's the author of a new book called Friction. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hey there, I'm Michael Momsen. So, Michael, today we are speaking to Roger, who has written a book all about friction. This is a topic that we've explored many times on the show in the past, but we haven't really done a deep dive into unpacking why it matters and how do you avoid giving that experience to your customers. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think friction is always something we go, yeah, of course we want to give our customers a friction-free experience, but what exactly is it? How does it pop up? Why is it that it keeps popping up in our ways of building processes and thinking? And how do we actually start practically chipping away at this stuff? Yes, indeed. So let's jump into it. We started off by asking Roger to tell us about an experience he's recently had that had a little too much friction. Well, yeah, I I had to file my taxes uh, uh, in the U.S. Uh, Our income tax uh, was uh, due um, about a week or two ago, and that is the ultimate in a high-friction experience. The instructions for the 1040, which is the basic income tax form, are 107 pages long. Good Lord. (laughs) Uh, And uh, uh, this is why 90% of the taxpayers in the U.S. either pay somebody to do it or they use software to reduce some of that friction. And, you know, I think there's probably a good lesson there for businesses. Uh, Companies like TurboTax create a sort of an interview process uh, that attempts to replicate in some ways. You know, if you were sitting down across from an accountant, they were sort of pleasantly asking you, well, okay, what's this? Uh, How do you answer that? And so on. And they do it in little steps uh, so that it's never intimidating. You never see a form with uh, 20 spaces that you have to fill in. They take a lot of the friction out of it. Not 100% for sure, but uh, they do make it easier. Yeah, Roger, I completely agree that filling out your taxes is, uh, of course, filled with, uh, with friction. So, how then can we think about friction as it relates to customer experience? First of all, I think probably uh, the worst customer experience uh, is, is better than the tax experience. Uh, uh, I think that um, most companies make an effort to have a good customer experience, but unfortunately, uh, they don't always succeed. Uh, you know, they uh, say that they are customer centric, that the customer is the number one concern for their business and so on. But when push comes to shove, often decisions are made for the convenience of the business. There are, for instance, security measures as far as lengthy passwords and logging people out after uh, 15 minutes of being on the website uh, uh, and these sorts of things that somebody somewhere, the securities are for the company, said, okay, to protect ourselves from liability, we need to do this stuff. Uh, And uh, it creates um, a lot of work for customers, uh, sometimes uh, crazy amounts uh, because they're just poorly executed. Uh, But, you know, Amazon doesn't do any of that stuff. And I, I hold them up as an example of customer experience because they have managed to make ordering frictionless. Uh, In fact, back in 1997, Jeff Bezos was talking about 
frictionless shopping. Now, most companies were just thinking about uh, e-commerce uh, in uh, that year, but he had this vision of how it actually could be frictionless. And uh, just a year later, they patented their one-click ordering system. Uh, and they defended that when Barnes & Noble uh, tried to copy it. They ended up in court and Amazon ultimately prevailed. Barnes & Noble uh, had to add an extra click to their process. Apple, meanwhile, who knows quite a bit about customer experience, looked at that. They were introducing uh, their music store at the time and said, we got to have that. And they just licensed it. They didn't fight it. They just said, this is going to make things better for our customers and we want to be the dominant player in this. And they licensed it. So that type of focus is what really works. You know, you can't just say, yeah, the customer's number one, but, you know, we've got these financial concerns, these uh, legal concerns. Uh, I mean, sometimes all these uh, stupid things you have to click on, accepting terms and conditions, and uh, they probably wouldn't actually be legally meaningful, but somewhere a lawyer is feeling satisfied that, okay, well, the customer clicked on that, uh, uh, that they accepted that 87-page document, so we're protected now. Is that really protection? Who knows? But uh, unfortunately, all these little things add up often to friction in the customer experience. So, Roger, you recently uh, wrote a book uh, all about friction, and I'm, I'm sure we can all agree that the goal is to have friction-free experiences, and it's even something that's almost becoming a cliche, like being customer-centric. I'm sort of interested in what tend to be the common uh, pitfalls that add up to this friction when you look at it. And then, yeah, we can then separately spend some time, you know, understanding how to put our friction goggles on, so to speak, and uh, look out for it in our own businesses and take it out. But what tend to be the major themes of friction? Uh, certainly, forms and e-commerce are big frictional elements. Uh, companies try and optimize that experience, but often uh, they don't observe customers uh, using their processes. They just assume the customers are going to know what to do, and they ignore steps. Uh, at a recent conference, I was talking to a firm that has expertise in behavioral science, and they assist companies with their online processes. And commonly, they'll ask, well, how many steps are there in your checkout process? And either the coder or the marketing manager will sort of think for a second and say, three. Uh, but when they actually analyze it, you know, how many clicks, how many scrolls, how many fields, uh, you know, how many times does somebody have to enter something? It ends up uh, being 27 instead of three. And I think that's one reason why there's this disconnect where people say, well, it's, uh, our checkout process is really simple. One of the things that uh, drives me absolutely bonkers is filling out forms where Chrome makes it super easy to autocomplete forms. Uh, Google, five years ago, introduced uh, this and said, we're doing this to reduce friction. They actually use the word friction so that even if you did have to capture a fair amount of information from a customer or a visitor, they would make it easy to complete that form. But I would say more than half the time, the underlying code in these forms isn't right. And people end up uh, either with the fields populated incorrectly with like the wrong information, like the email address and the phone line or something, or uh, just not populated at all. You know, Three days ago, I was registering for, of all things, a tech conference. Now, you would think, okay, these guys should know what they're doing, right? And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm filling out this form. It was, it was rather, it was a longish form, uh, not terribly long, maybe a dozen fields or something, not like just entering your email address. Uh, and every single field populated with the word Roger, my first name. Okay. <laughs> now, I assume what the coder did was just copy the field and replicate it so that uh, it- Copy and paste. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's the thing is, the form looked fine. You know, if, if the marketing manager looked at that, 
If anybody looked at it, it would look perfectly fine. Uh, it's only when somebody goes to fill it out that this becomes evident. That's why it's so important to watch customers, uh, you know, watch novice users try and do what you're expecting them to do. See where they run into problems. And, you know, you can do that in multiple ways. You can observe uh, people actually doing it. You can use uh, testing services that have people try and uh, follow your instructions, like register you for your event or place an order or whatever you want them to do. Uh, or you can use uh, various types of digital metrics to see uh, what people are doing. You know, how many times did they have to search uh, before they found what they were looking for? Did they click on stuff that wasn't supposed to be clickable, uh, but it, for some reason it looked clickable to them? And, you know, all of these things represent wasted effort. Uh, and, you know, many people will still struggle to go through it. Everybody files their tax. Well, not everybody, but most people file their tax in the U.S., even though it's a real pain, because there's penalties if you don't. Uh, uh, but if you are a business that is selling online or perhaps trying to get leads for your business online, you are almost certainly not the only place where those customers can go. Uh, and if what you're doing is more difficult for them, uh, they will go someplace else. So you mentioned um, forms as a good example of friction and sort of like the security elements that will pop up in websites or not pop up um, that create that friction. In the book, you also talk about decision friction. So this is where you sort of have too many choices. Is that something that you could touch on? Yeah, uh, there's quite a bit of research showing that choice can sometimes be paralyzing. Now, it depends on uh, uh, the product and the situation and the customer and so on. Uh, some people appreciate uh, tremendous choice. If you went into your uh, wine shop and they only had three types of wine, you might be disappointed because in some ways it's a discovery process for you. You're looking for uh, some new California red blend or Tempranillo from Spain or something. And uh, it's it's kind of a fun process where you spend some time uh, enjoying it. You know, on the other hand, if you're trying to make a purchase and you're presented with a bunch of options, uh, it can slow you down. There's, there's a great study done at Columbia University years ago uh, that had people in successive weekends uh, who shopped in store choose jams. They offered people samples of these preserves or jams or jellies to taste. And then they saw how many people bought. And what they found was when they only had three choices, people bought more than when there were a couple of dozen choices. Now, you would think logically that more choices would mean more sales because somebody who didn't like the smaller number of choices might just find that, uh, you know, wow, you know, cinnamon blueberry, that sounds amazing. And, uh, but in fact, that wasn't what, what happens. Um, often people are sort of paralyzed uh, by the number of choices and they end up deciding to buy nothing at that time. You know, they say, gee, I really need to think about this some more. Uh, so uh, it's really an optimization process and uh, not to harp on Amazon, but they do a pretty good job of solving that problem because they do have infinite choice there. Uh, they provide a host of tools to help the customer decide. Uh, they will label stuff as bestseller, which is a form of social proof. Uh, they will provide uh, star ratings and the number of reviews, uh, also forms of social proof that can uh, help people screen out products that uh, might be better than others. They 
I'll let you sort different ways by price, by and they they have a whole lot of tools. Right. So it's almost like it, you don't have to limit the decision by having less products. You can still have a lot of products, but you can make the decision process uh, easier. It's where the the sort of don't make me think test <laughs> uh, can be very high because a lot of that filtrization or recommendations are done at the top. You know, Netflix struggles with this uh, this problem and you know attempt all sorts of ways. Uh, I saw a news clip saying that they're going to randomize some things for you to make that decision process easier. So making that decision process um, easier for the customer doesn't necessarily mean just have a product range of three things, but you have to be thinking about what's an easy way that I can deliver this where they don't have to think too much. Well, sure. Like imagine you're at a restaurant and uh, they've got an amazing menu and there's, you know, five different dishes that all look pretty interesting to you. And, you know, rather than uh, let you suffer forever through that and think, oh man, I made the wrong decision. The server says, the salmon is really fresh today and people have loved it. Uh, suddenly, all those other choices kind of um, go away and it crystallizes that, okay, here is a way that I can break that logjam and decide. And uh, smart servers uh, do that. I mean, obviously, they won't just randomly recommend stuff, but uh, if they have a clue as to what the customer is looking for, they can guide that decision and uh, it ends up being a pleasant experience for everybody. I guess it's probably worth asking then, fundamentally, you know, this is a show about customer experience. And so, why is it that friction matters when it comes to customer experience? First of all, uh, there is uh, sort of a general principle called the law of least effort. And uh, as Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winning a behavioral economist, uh, uh, said that uh, uh, people are fundamentally lazy uh, and uh, they will avoid thinking if they can. Uh, and more broadly, people will choose the path of least effort when there are multiple paths available. Uh, so uh, if there is friction in one company's customer experience process uh, and less in another's, that company with less over time will accumulate more business. And I think there's something else that uh, is really it's um, some fascinating data about what creates customer loyalty. And uh, we think about loyalty as perhaps meaning something like uh, uh, really delighting the customer, providing a, such exceptional exceptional experience that they're going to tell their friends and uh, blog about it or, uh, you know, post on uh, Instagram. Uh, but uh, in fact, uh, there's research showing that effort is a huge factor in customer loyalty. And Gartner Group looked at this and did some studies. And uh, they found that particularly when it comes to resolving a problem, you know, they always say if, if you want to really know what a company's like, uh, uh, have a problem with them. Like, you know, if, if you order a product and they ship it and it's there in a couple of days or three days and it's fine, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. But uh, suddenly the product didn't work or they got the wrong thing. Uh, this is where you can really uh, sort of make or break uh, your customer experience. Uh, their research showed that uh, 96% of customers who had a high effort experience uh, reported being disloyal to that brand in the future compared to only 9% of the low effort customers. And by effort, they meant uh, things like, could you get the problem resolved on the first try? Did you have to change channels, which would be higher effort? Like you start on Twitter and they say, well, I'll call our 800 number. Uh, and then maybe you talk to a person in the 800 number and say, oh, you need to talk to this other department and you have to explain your problem again. Uh, you know, that's um, uh, it's a huge factor. Uh, repeat buying, uh, very similar numbers like 94% uh, of low effort customers are repeat buyers versus 4% of high effort customers. Uh, and even word of mouth, only 1% of low effort customers would say bad things about the company compared to 88% of high effort customers. Uh, and this is really pretty incredible research. And I suppose it varies by industry and by customer expectations and so on. 
but it just shows how important minimizing effort is. Well, Roger, welcome to the Quickfire Round. This is our lightning game show segment where we ask quickfire questions and you've got 10 seconds to answer. Your time starts at the end of the first question. Are you ready? I am ready, Adam. Great. So, Roger, what brand do you look up to as a great example of customer experience? Has to be Amazon. I mean, it's such an obvious example, but it uh, has to be Amazon. Wonderful. What did you want to be when you grew up? An engineer at some point in my uh, maturing uh, education. That, that was my original career and uh, did that for a few years. You know, an engineer is a great thing to be, even if you aren't doing it, because it kind of teaches you to uh, treat the real world as it is, as opposed as to what you want it to be, and it teaches you how to solve problems. And so what skill are you terrible at? Singing. <laughs> we're not, we're, we're not, we're not going to be singing on this, are we? Uh, no, we, we are not. Roger, what are you reading right now? Wow, I'm reading a ton of books. Um, I'm referring back to uh, Ryan Holiday's The Perennial Seller at the moment. Uh, great book on how to create uh, products that last, things that last. A lot of focus on writing, but also on uh, lots of other types of things. Roger, what non-work-related thing are you really into right now? It seems like work is kind of all-consuming uh, at the moment, what uh, with the new book launch and everything else. Uh, uh, but uh, I am repairing some watches, uh, which is kind of a uh, little diverting hobby. Nothing, nothing major. Things like uh, uh, popping them open to uh, replace batteries, which sometimes can be a little bit more involved than you expect. And Roger, where do you go to upskill? Um, books, uh, YouTube, podcasts, other sources? Uh, I read uh, probably 60 business-related books a year or so, uh, and that, that really keeps me busy. <laughs> uh, that's about uh, is all. I do attend a few conferences, and when I attend a conference to speak, I actually try and look at the other sessions and see uh, what might be interesting and educational, too, uh, you know, rather than uh, just... Uh, you know, hiding in the hotel room or something, waiting waiting for the call to go on stage. Uh, it's a, the conference is such a great opportunity to uh, interact with uh, both other speakers and uh, attendees, and you actually learn a lot just from talking to people. And then to finish this off, Roger, what is your guilty pleasure? Hmm. Probably a dark chocolate. <laughs> it's um, and it's it, see it has this veneer of being a health food because uh, some <laughs> studies uh, financed by the chocolate industry no doubt uh, showed that uh, it had certain health benefits. So now it's like, well, these chocolate covered almonds are like practically a superfood. You know, you've got almonds <laughs> that are healthy for you and dark chocolate uh, that's healthy for you. So uh, that would be it. Yeah, uh, st- stick with that narrative and go with it. I think Roger. Yeah, with a glass uh, of wine, perfect. <laughs> So, in the book, you say that delight is for dummies and often a lot of us in the customer experience industry think a lot about, you know, delighting our customers. So, is a good way to think about this is sort of removing friction as a as a wave one as much as possible and then delight. <laughs> there probably be a lot of delight just to not having any friction well, yeah, <laughs> in exactly. the experience. And then any kind of delight then happens afterwards as opposed to you sort of have friction throughout a range of experiences and then people try to add in delight, but it's still just annoying because you're still having me jump through hoops. Is that a good way to think about when you say delight is for dummies? I guess I'm being a little bit provocative there because uh, there's nothing wrong with delighting your customers. Okay, if if you can delight a customer, uh, that's great. What the Gartner research shows, though, is that that's not what creates loyalty. 
uh, you know, it's it's good, uh, and you will undoubtedly get uh, you have a potential for more sales. And if you had uh, uh, didn't have that delight, but the um, other problem is it's really hard to scale. You know, it's maybe easy enough to delight one customer uh, or you know maybe one out of ten customers, but. Uh, to try and exceed every customer's expectations uh, is really, really difficult to do. And, uh, you know, some businesses try and uh, uh, empower their people to do that. And that, that's good. For instance, uh, Four Seasons allows any employee to spend up to $2,000 to resolve a problem. Of course, at that point, even not so much about delight. It's about delight, but also uh, that uh, avoiding high effort problem resolution. But they do that. But most companies... Uh, cannot do that. Most companies don't have the margins to be able to do that. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with Delight. It's just really hard to deliver at scale. It gets just uh, as you go from a single location, perhaps even owner-operated location, uh, and try and replicate that Delight across uh, many outlets uh, where owner and executives uh, can't be nearby, uh, it just gets tougher and tougher. Okay, Roger. So I think you've sold us on the idea of removing friction from experiences. Could you give us an example then of a product which has done a really great job of removing friction from its experience? Uh, there is a an entrepreneur and a technical guy uh, named uh, Ramahem Malasani, and he looked at the home networking market, these the routers that now these days everybody has in their house uh, to distribute internet to the various devices. Uh, and all of the devices were pretty much the same. They were from the big networking companies, the Cisco's, the Netgear's, uh, multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, and they were basically little black boxes with blinking lights on that you had to uh, connect to an IP address on your computer and go through some uh, login processes and then uh, menu after menu for, to configure them with really cryptic terms uh, for uh, security. Uh, you know, do you want WPA or WEP or, uh, you know, how, how many bits? And it's, it's like very difficult for uh, normal users and even experienced network people generally, once they got their home router configured, wouldn't touch it for fear of having to uh, go through the process again. And uh, what he saw was that even though uh, he had very few resources to begin with, uh, that he could achieve success in that market if he could take the friction out of that process, the sort of, you know, multi-hour setup and just a point where many people would not set it up themselves. They would have to have uh, a service provider do it for them because it's just too confusing. Uh, and uh, he created a router called the Almond for the company called Securify, and it had a little touchscreen on it. And he was able to do this because he saw that mobile phones were bringing the price of touchscreens down to a reasonable level where a few years earlier that wouldn't have been possible. Uh, none of the established players were putting touchscreens on their routers because, hey, they had a system that worked and that was how it was done. And people thought he was crazy for doing that. But uh, it ended up taking just a few minutes to install a router without having to log in with your computer to an IP address, especially for people who don't know what an IP address is. And it made it ridiculously simple. And what happened was um, he would not have been able to get his product into the uh, big stores like the Best Buys and uh, you know the um, Walmarts and big distributors uh, because they have gatekeepers. Instead, he went to Amazon that has actually a low friction process itself for vendors getting online. And he got his product out there. 
uh, started getting reviews. Uh, people echoed the fact that, wow, I installed this in a few minutes. And pretty soon uh, he was had hundreds and then thousands of five-star reviews on his product. He was getting these stunning ratings uh, in a category that was traditionally poorly rated. And he prospered and now has sold hundreds of thousands of these things, despite uh, being a tiny, tiny player compared to the big guys. So, Roger, we are completely on board with reducing friction. And you use a good example in your book, which is just the amount of trillions of dollars that are left in e-commerce checkouts because of friction. I even had this happen the other week where I wanted to buy a couple of new t-shirts and it got to a point where it asked for this visa verify thing and I didn't have the, the code with me. So, I was like, ah, oh, doesn't matter that much. I'll, <laughs> I'll get it another time of which I've not purchased. So, you know, reducing that friction will absolutely uh, not only recover that money that's on the table, but will increase loyalty and so forth, like you mentioned. I'm interested in, you know, we have teams that build processes for good reasons um, and often, to make the organization's internal life easier. But at a sort of practical level, what are some tips that we can take on board for us all to put on these friction goggles to find the spots where we are putting customers through either lengthy processes or you know unnecessary processes or where we can use technology or take on more of that burden? I'm sort of interested in how to sort of have uh, the broader team take on this mindset. Uh, you mentioned friction goggles, which are uh, a... Uh little thing at the beginning of the book, I use a fable, sort of a modern fable. And the book is a more traditional business book throughout. But I start with a fable of uh, these magic friction goggles that enable people to see friction because what my experience has been- Do you sell them? (laughs) I I wish uh, they were- Well, no, actually, I give them away uh, because what I've found is uh, if I do a uh, 45 or 60-minute talk, uh, people- afterwards, it starts seeing friction. Uh, And I think when people read this book, uh, they're going to start seeing friction. Even if they listen to this podcast, they are going to have these goggles where now suddenly uh, they will start seeing it where they didn't before. But I mean, beyond that, okay, first of all, you have to have this level of awareness saying, okay, I'm going to look for this and I'm going to identify it because all too often people don't see it when it's right in front of their faces. But I think by focusing on it, uh, uh, you can see it. But then uh, the next thing to do is actually observe your customers and also to have your team members pay attention to the interactions they have with their customers and find those friction points. And one of the fun things I think is that uh, if you can get your team members to start looking for friction in the customer experience, uh, they will start finding it in your own experience. You know, I know that um, in a past podcast episode, you talked about the customer experience flywheel. And I think that's really a brilliant thing because it uh, it ties in not just like 100% focus on the customer, the customer is at the center of that process, but it also involves the team members and involves leadership because you've got to really have everybody on board with this. And when uh, the team members start seeing friction, they will identify it uh, themselves in their own operations. You know, they'll find that, well, gee, I'm sending this report in every week and nobody's reading it. And, you know, not only is that a waste of time and productivity, uh, but it's very demotivating for people if they feel that they're engaged in an activity that is not really central to the business. It's not helping the customer. It's just sort of busy work. And people get frustrated when they sit in meetings and there's no real purpose in being there or the meeting doesn't accomplish anything after 45 minutes. Uh, This is all incredibly frustrating. And I think that uh, when both team members and leaders become friction aware and the leaders empower people to deal with these issues, a lot of stuff can happen. And it's not just good for the customers, it's good for the team. Have you seen any organizations or teams that have 
taken on this challenge of putting on their friction goggles? That are- the goggle concept's a little bit new, uh, but uh, you know, I think to go back to the classic. Uh, management stories. Uh, uh, Jack Welch created his uh, workout program a while ago, which was designed to foster communication across all levels. One of the things that they did was empower anybody to talk to anybody. And so you had managers talking to workers who often were union workers who in the past had had a very confrontational relationship. And instead, you managed to ask, well, how can we make your job easier? Which was really kind of a stunning thing because usually it's like, well, why can't you work harder? Uh, or that was their perception anyway. And so they found things uh, like uh, a machine operator who wore out a pair of gloves because he's handling sharp metal all day, uh, once a week or so had to go to another building, leave his workstation, go to another building, go to the tool crib, fill out a form, uh, find a supervisor to assign the form, uh, take it back to the tool crib, get the gloves, walk back to his workstation. could take an hour or two just because uh, there was a insufficient trust that the workers wouldn't steal the gloves. But uh, nobody had ever looked at the practicality of that system until this worker said, well, this is a waste of time. You know, and suddenly it's, you know, sort of one of those forehead slapping moments. Well, why don't we just put a box of gloves by the guy's workstation? How many can he steal? And, you know, it ended up uh, being a huge savings. We've got we've got our um, uh, friction goggles on, which um, you jokingly say you give away for free, which is a bit of a blessing and a curse, I think, because then you start to notice friction <laughs> right, in everything. Well, it's, it's frustrating to see it and not do and be able to do anything about it. Uh. Exactly. And so when it's your own organisation, then great, you can actually take some steps to act and, and fix that. But when you're wearing the goggles as a customer, then it's increasingly um, frustrating. What are some examples you've seen uh, in industry where brands have used technology to reduce friction? Uh, well, one uh, that comes to mind is Walmart. Uh, uh, they they do some interesting things. Uh, they typically get a bad rap for not uh, competing with Amazon very effectively in e-commerce. So they're doing a little better these days. But uh, uh, first of all, they have a global behavioral sciences unit, which is something relatively few companies have. But uh, they focus on behavioral science of their uh, customer experience and also of their employee experience. So that's one smart thing they've done. And They also employ a separate company to do sort of a deep data dive into their e-commerce data. Like, what are they uh, selling? And, you know, I look for anomalies. Eventually, a human will address those anomalies, but uh, they use artificial intelligence to identify these things. And, for example, uh, they found this product that was selling uh, pretty well on the website, but in the app uh, wasn't selling. Zero sales. And they said, okay, that's kind of strange. And... They dug into it, uh, and it turned out that there was a color choice for that product. The color choice dropdown, for some reason, didn't appear on the app, hence nobody was able to make a purchase. And they have millions of products. Uh, trying to identify these things by human uh, study would be pretty darn difficult, but by combining you know, smart humans with some pretty smart data analysis, they can find these things and say, okay, there seems to be a problem here. Let's dig into it a little bit and see if we can fix it. The number one thing is is look at watching people, though, you know, and then after that, uh, if, if you've got the scale, then you can do that sort of deep data dive, too. So, let's continue this theme of technology then and talk about some technology products which have been used to solve friction problems. 
One in particular is the Ocean Medallion, which is used by Carnival Cruise Line. Uh, so, if you go on a cruise with one of Carnival's brands, you get this little token that you can wear on you know, your wrist or around your neck, and it has this RFID tag in it, which lets you do various things around the ship, such as get into your room or to pay for things. So, could you tell us a little bit about the Ocean Medallion? We sure, uh, you know, I think both the Disney Magic Band and then the Carnival Ocean Medallion uh, are examples of where uh, the future of certain kinds of customer experience are headed. And the, the same guy, John Paget, uh, was responsible for both of those. And just a couple weeks ago, I had a chance to uh, visit Carnival's uh, Innovation Lab, which is uh, across the street in kind of a warehousey building. It's not in their main headquarters, but it's close by uh, in a nondescript building where they have mocked up uh, every element of a cruise experience. And they test the products there. They It's their control center where they monitor rollouts to ships. They're rolling out, uh, uh, I think, a couple of ships a month now, I think, with this technology. And uh, they're also learning from the data. Uh, when they develop the Ocean Medallion, which is a device that you wear that lets your server recognize you, lets the technology recognize you, your elevator recognizes you, pretty much you're being tracked throughout the ship, but it's in, to enable a more personalized customer experience. So when you sit down uh, in a restaurant, you can be greeted by name. Your preferences, if you have any, will already be known. They have two objectives there. They have this uh, uh, giant whiteboard, but there's a couple of big words on it. And one is uh, personalization and the other is frictionless. Uh, they're trying to increase personalization and reduce friction. And uh, one of the things they uh, related was that one of the things the existing management uh, thought was kind of a goofy idea was having this device be a room key when they already had a perfectly good room key that uh, was your uh, sort of like a credit card. You just swipe through your cruise card. And it was expensive to implement, change all the locks on the ships to, to respond to this device. But they did it. And uh, it turned out that when they surveyed passengers uh, uh, after some of the first experiences, the thing that the passengers commented on most was the fact that they could get into their room without having to fish out their cruise card. Because the use case there, which people kind of ignored, I guess, initially or didn't weren't thinking of, you know, you're coming back to your room, you've got two cups of coffee and maybe, uh, you know, a plate of food or something, uh, and you got to figure out, okay, what am I going to put on the floor so I can get my cruise card out? Uh, and this enabled people to get in much more easily. And so uh, this is something that might not be obvious. It wasn't obvious to everybody. John Padgett was uh, uh, pretty much aware that uh, people would like this. But, uh, it, you know, people who are so used to the status quo did not recognize the benefit from that until suddenly, oh, the passengers really like that. So, Roger... We've talked a lot about friction. I don't think I've ever said the word friction <laughs> so much. No, that's a- uh, in a in a conversation. It's obviously the title of your book, and 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 so clearly we want to take the challenge on board, which is you know removing all these uh, micro and major pieces of friction on customers' journey as they're trying to do things. I'm interested in what the opposite of friction is. So if friction's the bad stuff that gets in the way, thought it'd be good for you to maybe just touch on that. Well, I'd say in most cases, the opposite of friction is effort. Uh, now, there's there's different kinds of friction. You can have financial friction. If you want people to consume less of a product, you can put a tax on it. And that's, that's kind of a form of friction. I don't dwell a lot on that in the book, but uh, I do mention it because it's, it's a way that um, uh, governments can sometimes uh, change behavior. And sometimes, too, friction can be a positive thing. Uh, if you want to prevent people from, say, withdrawing money from their retirement plan so they can, you know, pay a bill this month, 
uh, you can add a little bit of friction to that process. You don't want to prevent them from getting their money, but instead of doing it with a phone call, maybe they have to fill out a form. And if you're designing a computer game, you want elements of friction as well <laughs> if you make it too easy going from a level one to level two. Well, yeah, that uh, right. That's a whole talk about behavioral science. I think uh, game design is like one giant behavioral science lab because you've got to get it just right. Uh, you know, if somebody can blow through the game, it's no fun. If somebody's uh, frustrated, uh, you know, for an hour, then they may not pick it up again. No, I think that's really great. And, and I'll just say, you know, Roger, I, I love the example of the friction goggles. I think it's a, it's a great way to think about it. And I mean, maybe if you just had any final thoughts uh, that you'd like folks to be aware of or cover, uh, certainly anything uh, that, that sort of summarizes the book and, and when it comes out and things like that. Well, I guess uh, maybe sort of the overarching thing that I discovered after going down the rabbit hole uh, here of uh, studying friction is that it pretty much affects everything. And most of the book talks about uh, customer experience and employee experience and productivity inside a company. But I do touch on even how friction has determined the success of regions and nations, why uh, Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley and Boston's Route 128 isn't when it appeared that Boston had all the advantages and why 30 years ago, China's economy and India's economy were the same size. And today, China's eight times the size of India's economy. And then all the way down to the micro level where personal habit formation can be heavily influenced by friction uh, and basically uh, making things you want to stop doing more difficult, adding friction to them, putting the chocolate candy uh, in the next room, putting it on a high shelf. Don't bring it home so that you have to actually go to the store to buy it if you really have that taste for it or making things easy. You know, if you want to run first thing in the morning, uh, sleep in your running clothes, put your sneakers right by the foot of the bed so you'd actually have to change out of your clothes if you weren't going to skip running. So it can be a powerful factor at all levels. Well, Roger, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a friction-free and uh, and wonderful discussion. <laughs> well, if it was friction-free, it was because of the great work that you guys do. So uh, you're great hosts. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Adam, another wonderful conversation, this time all about friction. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this episode. And I mean, friction something we've touched on on a number of episodes uh, in the past. And to actually kind of dig into this and what causes it and some methods to overcome it, it was really great to focus on that. Great. So, this is part of the show where we summarize our takeaways from the conversation and give you some practical thoughts to walk away with. So, Adam, what was one of your key takeaways? Sure. So, to start off, takeaway number one is that friction really matters. We inherently know that this is something that we want to avoid, but what really came through clearly in this discussion with Roger is that it matters a great deal. And Roger quoted some stats from some Gartner research that shows that 9 in 10 people reported being disloyal to high effort brands compared to the 1 in 10 who reported being uh, disloyal to low effort brands. That's a pretty big divide. And so this, you know, friction's bad for, you know, loyalty, um, satisfaction, revenue, these kinds of things. And just to kind of illustrate this, what I thought was quite interesting is, you know, right at the start of the conversation, Roger was talking about this example of his taxes being very friction filled. And the problem there is, you know, taxes are a mandatory thing that we all kind of have to do. And there's a penalty if you don't file them on time. The difference is if you're a customer shopping with somebody that's a voluntary action. There's no mandate that if I'm dealing with friction from my service provider for my phone bill or for setting new shoes or whatever I'm buying, that I have to shop there. In fact, it's the opposite. There's plenty of other options. And so, friction is actually really bad because it's so simple to just go somewhere else where there's lower friction and go and find that much more delightful experience. 
Great, so that leads us to our second takeaway. And if we think that friction really matters, well then the sort of second step is, well, how do you even find it? And how do you even go looking for it in your business within your teams? And so from reading Roger's book and in this conversation, I really like the mental model of friction goggles. And so this sort of concept of putting on your friction goggles as teams to actually just go looking for it because it's actually one of these things where it's actually an awareness thing where you're just so used to, oh, a customer needs to fill in that form and then they need to call that one and then they need to go through that process. And it's just the way that we work that we actually don't think of it from a friction standpoint. And so just becoming more aware and becoming friction aware, I really like this mental model of putting on your friction goggles and just looking for it. Yeah, and I mean, like in practical terms, what does this look like? I mean, it's like do user testing, get out into the store and like watch, observe real people purchasing things. Try the product for yourself. And I mean, there was a good example actually in the, in the discussion with Roger where had somebody actually gone through and filled out the application form online, they would have seen that it pre-populated all the fields with his first name. It looked good, but nobody actually used it to test it. And so this mental model of, you know, wearing your friction goggles is really this idea of thinking like a customer and, and acting and behaving like them so that you can find those problems that you would otherwise overlook. So I think that leads us really nicely into our third takeaway for this episode, which is that delight is for dummies. (laughs) So I found this one quite funny, actually, because we say the word delight in the intro to this podcast even. But when you unpack it a little bit more, you realize that delight is something possibly to aim for at some point, but that shouldn't be your first port of call. Where the real wins come are reducing that effort. And if you can remove all that friction and, you know, make this process of dealing with uh, your business super low effort, then the rewards will come from that. And in fact, if you think about it the wrong way around, if you try and get delight first without removing the friction, then you get like a couple of moments, a couple of brilliant moments amongst a sea of mediocrity. And so (laughs) that's obviously not the outcome that the customer wants either. So, the last thing I want to finish on is like, we're bought into this, right? Like, friction matters. Like, (laughs) the research is there. I'm going to put on my friction goggles to find it. I now understand that we shouldn't just chase the delight straight away, but the delight should be in the removing effort. I want to touch on the point of the burden of effort is on us. And there will always be a burden. And I think this is the thing, right? Like, a customer needs to fill in a form, a process needs to be done, something needs to happen. There will be effort somewhere and the burden of us as customer experience leaders, as leaders who create customers' experiences, the burden is on us to do that. And I think a good way to think about how to do this and how to bring teams on the journey here is... I start by thinking, what is it that I want a customer or what is it that I want a prospective customer to do? So, I want them to fill in this form. I want them to sign up this thing. I want them to call this number. It could even be like, what is it that I want them to think or what is it that I want them to know? Like, I've got this new product or I've got this new service. You know, I want them to be aware of it and then I want them to sign up to this thing or whatever it may be. And then I think the, the sort of step two is, well, how can I help them do this thing or know this thing with ideally no effort or with the very least amount of effort possible. (laughs) So sometimes that may be the form has little fields. That is one example, but it doesn't necessarily always have to be that. So how do I take the effort off the customer? We will do the hard work, we'll do the effort. And how do I get them to do this thing or get to this way of thinking with the least amount of effort as possible? And the last thing I'll finish on that this is actually really easy to test because you can just ask your customers, (laughs) how easy was it to do this or, how quickly could you figure this out? Or you show them a web page or a piece of comms and you let them read it for five seconds and then you close it and you go, 
what was the main theme there? And if they can't summarize it, well, then you haven't passed this test. So this idea of the burden of effort is on us, I think is a great way to, to think about this and not just go, oh, we need to like reduce the number of fields. That may be part of it, but actually it's like, well, what is it that we're trying to get them to do? And then how do we take on all that effort so that it's the least amount of effort and the least amount of thinking for the customer? So those are our four takeaways. Let's sum them up. The first one was that friction really matters and causes disloyalty and a number of other issues with your brand. Great. The second one is put on your friction goggles. <laughs> uh, number three is delight is for dummies. And the fourth one is the burden of effort is on us. Great. So, in closing, remember, we would love to hear from you. If you enjoy the show or if you've got any thoughts that you want to share, you can contact Adam or me directly. The best way to catch us is on LinkedIn. Our direct links are in the show notes. Feel free to drop us a line. Wonderful. Speak to you next time. Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is produced by Rateit. Rateit can help you capture in-the-moment feedback, understand the insights from that, and take action to improve the customer experience. So, to find out more about how Rateit can help your organization improve your customer experience, head to the website rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. This podcast is made in partnership with Wavelength Creative. It was produced by me and Christopher Lawson, who also edited and mixed the episode. Our theme songs are by Icolix, Peter Cooley and The Shrugs. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Adam Jaffrey. I'll speak to you next time. <laughs>